Well, good morning, family. It's good to be together this morning. I do encourage you to take a Bible and open to Psalm 99. And as we come to the Word of the Lord, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, this morning we ask Your grace on those who are in need. Father, we are so blessed and honored and privileged to have Your Word, to be able to open it together, to hear what You have to say to us. Father, I pray that we would have willing ears, eager ears to hear from You, and that You would speak to us through Your Word that which we need to hear. To that end, we commit ourselves and we commit these minutes ahead for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Have you ever tried to find just the right word to describe something? Maybe a sunset that you saw that was just extraordinary. You try to find the right word to describe it. Maybe uh, you know something as simple as a flower or a leaf which, of course, none of those things are simple when you really look at them. It's more difficult when you try to describe something complex in just a single word. Even more challenging if you just try to describe a person in a single word, whether it's a, a sweetheart, a child, a friend. Try to describe someone in one word. It's very hard. And if that's difficult, how much more challenging to try to describe God in just one word. I wonder if we were going to choose just one word to describe God, I wonder what word you might choose. Some of you might say, awesome, God is awesome, and He is. You might use words, we might use words like majestic or almighty or love. God is love, the Scripture says or forgiving, or creator, or gracious. Indeed, God is every one of those things. And the Scriptures themselves use many, many, many words trying to describe God. But if there is one single word description of God used more often than any other in the pages of the Scripture, It is a word that is highlighted here in the psalm before us this morning in Psalm 99. And I want to call our attention this morning to that one word that this psalm calls our attention to. This psalm breaks itself like most songs that we sing. In many of the psalms, it, it breaks into stanzas or verses. This one has three stanzas, three verses, and you can easily pick them out as you look at the psalm because every verse ends with similar words. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Verse 9, exalt the Lord and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Holy. And there's the word that is used more often to describe God as a single word than any other in Scripture. God is holy. We can hear it in uh, 
Isaiah, as Isaiah describes the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, he has a vision of the Lord and, and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. John, the Apostle John, describes a similar scene to Isaiah as he describes a scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 4. And John writes, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. As we said, there are many words that are good and true descriptors of God. Many that we find in the pages of Scripture. But the one used most often is this word holy, and we never find any other description of God repeated like holy is three times. We never hear awesome, awesome, awesome is the Lord. Or mighty, mighty, mighty is the Lord. Or love, love, love is the Lord our God. But we heaven resounds with the cry. The seraphim there never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. So I think it's fair to say if there is one word, if we had to choose only one word to describe God, it would be this one, holy. The question then is, what does the word holy mean? And we could really say several things about it. I will call our attention just to three things that, that holy means. Most often when we think of holiness or holy, we think of sinless. We think of moral purity. And indeed, that is true of God. God is completely morally pure. He has no evil, no shadow of evil, no hint of sin in Him. He is totally set apart from corruption. He is holy in His purity. That is true and that is part of what holiness means, but holiness means more than that. Holiness can also mean perfection. That God is the perfection of all that is good. He is the absolute, the very standard by which everything that is right and good is measured. In other words, God is love. And so if you want to know what the measure of love is, what the ultimate of love is, what the standard of love is, we look at God. And we can do that with any goodness, any attribute of God. He is the perfection of it. So holiness is purity, sinlessness. It is also perfection, but there's more than that. When we speak of earthly things that are holy, objects, animals, people, when we speak of 
them saying that they are holy, generally what is mean is that they have been dedicated, they have been set aside, they have been consecrated to God. You'll see that in the Old Testament as as people and animals and things were all consecrated to God. They were set aside, made holy, consecrated for God's service. But when we talk of God using this word holy in that way as set apart, we don't mean that God is set apart for the service of God. But we still use holiness in this aspect of set apart in this way that God, as God, is set apart from all else. Meaning that God is totally unique. He is above all because He is the Creator of all. There is no one who is equal with Him. There is no one who compares to Him. There is no one who is in competition with God. He is the Supreme Sovereign. He is the source of all else. He is totally unique and set apart. All of those things are true and encompassed in the Word when we say God is holy. As we look at this psalm this morning, what we see in these three stanzas is that each stanza, each verse, will give us one way that God's holiness is demonstrated. And so this morning we're going to look at three ways in which God is holy. His holiness is set apart in His perfection. It is demonstrated. So let's begin. Let's follow along as I read the first three verses. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. God is holy in His rule, in His reign. The first three words there in verse 1. The Lord reigns. That is a complete statement. A statement complete in itself. There is nothing else added to that. There is no qualifier on that. That you know, The Lord reigns in the heavens. The Lord reigns over the earth. The Lord reign, it, There's no qualification to that because there is none needed because there's nothing excluded from His reign. The Lord is sovereign. He is reigning over everything. The Lord, by the way, and when you see that in most of your English translations, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And most of you know that whenever you see that in most English translations, it means it's, it's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. It is God's personal name. Yahweh is set apart as the unequaled, supreme, sovereign ruler of the universe. He is over everything that is seen and everything that is unseen. He is over all that was and all that is and all that ever will be. The Lord reigns. I wonder if you're like me. I wonder what happens to you. Whenever you're driving along down the road and you pass a policeman, and usually, of course, they're hiding behind something, and you just see them as you're 
Or when you look in the rearview mirror, and there they are. I wonder what happens to you. Because with me, my heart beats a little faster. I grab the steering wheel a little tighter. And I go, Ooh. and you glance down at the speedometer. And you think back of everything you've just done in the last five minutes. Are you that way? Why do we do that? Even if we really don't think we're doing anything wrong. Why do we do that? Well, first of all, we realize that we're not perfect. And sometimes we've done things wrong. Often we've done things wrong. A little too fast. A little neglectful. A little too much attention to the cell phone or the what we're eating or whatever. And... Or whatever, and so we're thinking, what, what did I maybe just do? And the person in that police car has authority and power. And with that authority and power, they can make us pull over. They can question us. They can search the car. They can write a little invitation to visit with a judge. Or pay a fine. They can arrest us. Theoretically, if we give them cause, they can take our life. They have authority and they have power. If a policeman can cause that feeling in our little heart and our mind... Because they have authority and power. What should be our response to the supreme sovereign of the universe? And He is totally perfect and pure in all He is and does. The psalm gives the answer. The Lord reigns. What's the next phrase? Let the earth tremble. The proper response for all nations, that's all peoples, everyone is to tremble before God. That's why several passages in Scripture say along with Psalm 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear the Lord, you haven't even started being smart. You haven't even started being wise. You are foolish to the core. That's really what that means. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. But I do believe that in our day and age, a majority of people, not only in the world at large, but in the church, have forgotten, have dismissed fear of God. David Wells wrote a book a number of decades ago called God in the Wasteland. And he makes the church, makes the case that the church has been infected and influenced by our culture and we've become infatuated with God's love and we've become ashamed of His holiness. He writes this, he says, we have turned to a God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. 
We have turned to a God who will fulfill all our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction, not because we've learned to think that of Him this way through Christ or through the Scriptures, but because we've learned to think of, his, of Him this way through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us. For our pleasure. For our satisfaction. And we've come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. I think he's right. In the church, many of us, all of us to some degree, have a tendency to turn things upside down. And rather than fearing the God who is sovereign and holy, many today feel free to ignore or even rewrite what God has said and make it fit their own desires. By the way, may I say that the Bible calls that idolatry? See, all idolatry is is worshiping a God that we create according to our own imagination, according to our own desires, rather than worshiping the God who is, the God who has revealed Himself. God is holy in His rule, in His reign. Verses 4 and 5 give us the next way that God's holiness is demonstrated or another way His holiness is demonstrated. Verse 4, The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. The psalmist says that God is holy in His justice. He is perfect. He is set apart because He is perfect justice. The sovereign King is passionate about justice. Notice He says He has established equity. God has set the principle of equity, of righteousness, of justice into this universe. Because He has done that is the very reason why we care about justice and equity. That's why we desire things to be fair. We like justice. It's built into us. If you doubt that, listen to your kids a little bit this afternoon. Or your grandkids. Or just go hang out on a playground. Very rarely do you listen to a bunch of kids playing where five minutes goes by without someone saying, Right? It's innate in us. We know there's justice and we should have it. We want justice. We love it. We want leaders who are just and fair. It's why the world tends to celebrate when the wicked leaders, the corrupt leaders, fall. Interestingly enough, by the way, it seems that whenever they're in power, everybody applauds them and loves them. <laughs> But then when the corrupt leaders fall, they go, oh yeah, we're glad they're gone. 
good riddance. Because down deep, everyone understands we want justice. We like seeing the bad guy get what he is due. That's why we love those revenge movies. That's why we love movies where the bad guy gets it and the good guy wins. And we cheer and we go, yeah! We love justice. Because God has established equity. We understand that it is right, it is good, we need it, we care. But more than that, he goes on and God, he, he, goes, he says that you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. God has called His people to live justly. He's called for justice among His people. The Old Testament law, the Scriptures, gave to Israel a, a code of here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Here's righteousness. It mandated that God's people should live justly and do justice and care about justice and rightness. And by the way, not only the Old Testament people, but God expects the very same of us today. We should be people who honor and desire justice and righteousness, not just in our case, but everywhere on behalf of all. Moreover, this this passage here also anticipates the day that is coming when Jesus the Messiah will return to this earth and rule His kingdom on earth. A time when He will establish justice and righteousness in the earth. It's looking forward to that saying, you have executed justice and righteousness. We haven't seen it fully yet, but it is coming one day when Jesus returns. And in a world where sometimes the bad guys look like they're getting ahead and like they're winning and like they finish first, we rejoice that God is holy. He is perfect in His justice and He will hold the wicked accountable. Is that good news? It is. We want to see the wicked, evil people of this world held accountable. So we love justice until we realize that under absolute, perfect justice, there is a problem. The problem is that we're going to be found guilty. Because every single one of us, besides being victims of injustice and evil, every one of us are also perps. We're perpetrators, those who have committed injustice and evil and wrongdoing. And in perfect justice, we are guilty. That's a problem. So then we realize what we really don't want is perfect justice. What we want is mercy. Good thing there's more of the psalm. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. This third stanza, the third verse of this psalm tells us that God is holy in His mercy. 
God's holiness shows up in His mercy. I see five ways His mercy shows up in this text. You've got to look hard, but you'll see it very clearly when you notice it. First of all, He says that God provided priests. God provided priests. Moses, Aaron, Samuel. See, there's a problem if you've got a God who is perfect Perfect in His holiness and perfect in power. We sang it in the holy, holy, holy. Perfect in power, love, and purity. It's a problem when you've got that God who is perfectly holy and we are guilty. How do you approach God? How can you have any relation with God? When we are separated from Him, God in His grace provided priests, intermediaries, Those who could communicate on God's behalf and those who could communicate on our behalf to God. Moses, Aaron, Samuel, he gives his examples. Interestingly, when we come to the New Testament, the New Covenant, after Jesus Christ, we discover something radical and wonderful and amazing. In the Old Testament, the only way you could go to God was through a priest. In the New Testament, because of Jesus Christ, because of His sacrifice on the cross, things have changed. What the Bible says, look at Revelation Revelation 1, verse 6, and He has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ, because He has, has made things right with God, because He has paid the cost of our sin, because He has made us holy in God's sight, God has made us a kingdom of priests. That's good news. We can go to Him and pray. That's marvelous. He goes on, he says, not only did God provide priests, but He says God answered their prayers. He heard them when they called. He answered them. Now, because Jesus is our great high priest, we know that he, he, that God hears and answers us. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 says it this way, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, skipping down a couple of verses, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Paul writes to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus has opened the door. He has mediated with God so that you and I can now go freely, as the book of Hebrews says here, we can come boldly to God and lay before Him our needs and we can have confidence, he says, that we may receive mercy and find grace. Isn't that awesome? God's mercy, His holiness and His mercy is showed up by providing priests and now making us priests and answering our prayers. Verse 7 gives us another way God has shown His mercy. It says, verse 7, In the pillar of the cloud He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave them. See, God spoke and gave His Word. 
God gave to the, to the Jews in the Old Testament. He gave them His law and testimonies and statutes and decrees. God's law then as it is now is not a curse that we have to live. <sighs> we have to, under God's law. We have to follow His Word. I guess I have to read it and follow it. God's law has always been a blessing. For in the Word of God, we find who God is. We get to know Him through His Word. Through God's law and His Word, we, know, we learn how we can come to God. Through God's Word and God's law, we learn how to live rightly. Through His Word, we learn how to avoid that which is harmful and dangerous and deadly. God's law is not a bad thing. It's a blessing. God has given His Word. God's mercy shows up next. We see in the next verse, in verse 8, O Lord, You answered them and You were a forgiving God to them. To Israel, a bunch of people who continued to fail, God was a forgiving God. And good news, He has not changed. He is still a forgiving God because I have a feeling you've failed and you've sinned probably in the last 24 hours. If you haven't, you're welcome to come up and start preaching. God forgave Israel when they sinned. And He forgives our sin through Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, you know it. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not because we deserve it, but because of the grace of Christ. God is a forgiving God. The last way that I see God's mercy in this text is is notice the next thing. He says, you are forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. God's mercy shows up in that He punished their wrongdoings. Which raises a couple of questions probably in your mind right now. And you're going, stop the bus, Pastor. You, you just said He forgave their sins, and now you say He punished them. Punished their wrong. That, that doesn't seem to add up. And secondly, you've put it on a list of blessings. You've really lost it this time, Pastor, you may be thinking. Well, the answer really is quite simple. And it's the same answer really to both questions. Well, the answer is simply this because God is a good Father. You know, if you wreck the family car, your parents may forgive you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to pay for the damages. And I would say, in most cases, if you have good parents, you probably have to do some of that. We call that good parenting. See, good parents will forgive their children. They still love their children. They forgive them, but they don't remove all the consequences. Why? Because good parents are trying to produce good, responsible, upright children who don't do the stupid stuff again. And God is doing the same thing with us. The Bible tells us this, for the Lord disciplines the ones He loves. 
God in His mercy and grace through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has removed all of the eternal consequences of our sin. We will not suffer the penalty of sin in hell. We do not have to work it off in purgatory. (laughs) They've been paid for by Jesus on the cross. But in this life, God often disciplines us and He often does it by simply letting us bear the natural consequences of our sin. And so the writer here says, the writer of this psalm says, God forgave them, yet, you see, He avenged their wrongdoings. He he brought the consequences upon them to teach them, to train them. That's God's mercy. God's holiness. Three ways probably you never really thought much about God's holiness before. God is holy in His rule. He's the supreme sovereign over all. God is holy in His justice. He is a God of perfect justice and righteousness. But because both of those are true, how grateful we are that he is also, His holiness also shows up in His mercy. What should be our response to this? I see two in this, two here in this psalm. Each of these stanzas gives us one way in which God's holiness is demonstrated and each of those stanzas ends with a way that we should apply and respond to God's holiness. Look in verse 3. Praise His great and awesome name. Verse 7. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, worship at His holy mountain. Let me condense those, summarize them into two responses that we are to have. The first is this. He says, praise, exalt. Praise is to verbally give God glory and honor. To exalt is to lift up, to elevate, to magnify God. Those two things go together. They're they're parallel and, and tied together. The first way that we are to respond to the holiness of God is to honor Him through our praise and exaltation, to give Him the glory that He deserves as the Holy One. You and I need to join with all the creatures, all creation, all those creatures in heaven that Isaiah described and that John described in Revelation who are constantly saying, holy, 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 holy. And recognize that it's not just one little thing. God's holiness is huge. We've just scratched the surface of ways it shows up. But there's a second thing it says here. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. May I say, I think in some very real ways, we have dumbed down worship in our generation. We equated worship with a song. That's what we do when we sing. We worship God. Well, may I say, a song can be worship to God, but... Worship is not a song. And you say, well, I come to the church to the worship service, and so this is worship. 
sitting here listening to the pastor flap his gums, that's worship. And we sing a couple of songs. I go home and we say, we did worship today. And I say, no. You can worship here, but the fact that you're here is not worship necessarily in and of itself. What is worship? The word translated here, worship, is the most common word in the Old Testament for worship. And if we translate it literally, it means this, to bow down. So when he says, exalt the Lord our God and worship, it means bow down at His footstool, it says. The picture is there is God on the throne. There's His footstool, His foot. And what we do is put ourselves right there at His foot. With our head right there, licking the dirt. And you see, it means very little to us in our culture, in our day, because we don't do this. But what that meant when you would go before a king and you put your face to the dirt, what you are saying is, you're the king and I am powerless before you. And here in this position, I am totally vulnerable. You can step on me. I'm right here. Everything's exposed. You can take a sword and cut my head off. You're king. I am not. And I am submitting to you. My very life is in your hands. That's what it means to worship God. It means to say, you are God, I am not. I am yours. My life is yours. I will do whatever you say for me to do. That's what worship means. See, we can tell God that in a song. But if it's not what we mean from our heart, it's not worship. We can express that to God here in church, but if that's not our heart, we have not worshipped. So what does God want from us? And I'll end with just these three thoughts, three ideas. Because if worship is saying, God, whatever you want, what does God want from us? I'll just give three. The first thing God wants from us is He wants for us to trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. You see, God is holy in His rule. He is absolutely powerful. God is holy in His justice. By that standard of justice, every one of us is guilty. And by God's power and authority, we are in a desperate world of hurt. But God is holy in His mercy. And in His mercy, He has provided a way, a solution to our problem. God became man. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And He says, I will give you forgiveness. I will give you eternal life. I'll bring you into my family, make you my child. And on and on with blessing after blessing, the only thing we have to do is respond in faith, in trust. Believe in Jesus. What is the first thing God wants from us? He wants us to trust Jesus. The second thing that He wants for us, from us, is that if we're going to, for those of us who trust Jesus, the next thing is He wants us to follow Jesus. Since Jesus has saved us, we should live for Him. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 puts it this way, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercies, because He's rescued us at the cost of 
of Jesus Christ. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God. And I love this last phrase, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. That's what worship is, to say, God, here I am. I'm yours. I want to follow Jesus. Third thing He wants from us. He wants us to live holy lives. Going back to that, that sense of unstained, pure. Paul says it this way, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for Christ. Trust Jesus. Follow Jesus. Live holy lives. It's the only reasonable response to a God who is holy in His rule, holy in His justice, and holy in His mercy. Let's pray. Father, what marvelous truth, what marvelous things we see here. We see how great and awesome and mighty You are. We see how the very thing we rejoice in, that You are a God of justice who will fix what is wrong. We also see that is what condemns us. But then we see You are merciful. Lord, how these truths ought to transform us. That you loved us so much that You, you sent Jesus. And now You give us the privilege of following Him and living holy lives. Lord, may these truths shape us and change us for Your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.